You're listening to audio from Gospel Light Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or support our ministry, please visit gospellight.sg. Today I have a tough task because we're looking at a subject that sounds so intimidating. Intimidating because it's scary, intimidating also because of the volume of information that you will have to handle. But we are continuing this series in Matthew 24 on the signs of the end times. I think, in a sense, this is a good season to consider this subject because for once, the whole world sits up because we are facing unparalleled pains and sufferings like never before. And when we go into this passage in Matthew 24, it gives us a lot more bite. It gives us a lot of sense of that fearfulness and terror and suffering that humanity will have to go through before Jesus comes back. But I also want to say, well, it's a scary passage to consider, a scary sequence of events to consider. I want to tell you, we already know the ending. Jesus comes back and we win together with him. We will be with him forevermore in joyful bliss. So it's scary. It's like a rough ride. It's like a good movie. It's a, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of scary stuff. But at the end of the day, I want to assure you, the Bible gives us a certain hope, a glorious, beautiful hope. So with that context, I then enter the scary parts of what the Bible prophesies of the future. The Bible tells us that before Jesus comes, several big chunks of events would have to take place. Number one, we learned in our previous two sermons that there will be the beginning of birth pains. Now, in this beginning of birth pains, there will be false teaching, but there will also be famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, and there will be pestilences. We are in the midst of a pestilence, but in the beginning of birth pains that sort of launches the sequence of events before Jesus comes, there will be pestilences and there'll be wars and there'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes. It's a scary time, but that's only the beginning. You know, when a lady is about to deliver the baby, the beginning of birth pains is painful, but it's only the start. Because right after that, Jesus tells us there will be the tribulation where the love of many may even go cold. It's going to be a scary time. Lawlessness will abound. There'll be false teachers. And the things that I experienced in the beginning of birth pains continue. And then, after the tribulation, there's this scary and weird term, abomination of desolation. You say, what is that? Well, hang in there. We're going to deal with it in a moment. After the abomination of desolation, it is like the trigger that launches into unparalleled sufferings in this world, and that is called the Great Tribulation. That's all found in Matthew 24, the Great Tribulation, where if it continues on, no human will be left alive. Scary thought. And then after the Great Tribulation, there will be the cosmic signs where the sun and the moon and the stars grow dark. And it is in that context that the blazing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be seen when he comes back in his second coming. So that's the 
overview of the signs of the end before Jesus comes. We've already looked at the beginning of birth pains, the tribulation. Today, we're going to set our focus on AOD, abomination of desolation. This is a term Jesus himself used in Matthew 24 when he said, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. The word abomination means something detestable, ugly, something that is so offensive. So there will be something very offensive, something hideous, something terrible that leads to desolation. That means destruction. So something abominable, detestable, hateful, offensive will continue to bring destruction and ruin. That's abomination of desolation, the detestable thing that leads to destruction. And this is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So you can read about this in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 12. And this is something that will take place in the holy place. It refers to the temple of God. So we are setting the context here. After the beginning of birth pains, the tribulation, there will be the abomination of desolation, something so hideous and offensive that Daniel prophesied about it will take place in the temple of God. Now, we can't understand this if we do not look at Daniel's prophecy. So in a very quick way, I read these verses to you. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. It's about Israel. It's about the Jews. It's about the nation. And your holy city. It's about Jerusalem. These things are going to take place in Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. When these 70 weeks are up, it brings about these ends. It will bring in everlasting righteousness, and there will be an anointing of a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, and then for 72 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I'm sure you're lost by now, but the good thing about being on video is that you can always go back and check it out again. But in a nutshell, let me share with you. What I think is easy for you to understand is this is a prophecy about 70 weeks. And according to Isaac Newton, he says that this prophecy is so amazing. It's so amazing that we could stick the truth of Christianity on this one prophecy alone. He says this is such an amazing prophecy that if you understand it, and when you see it come to pass, you realize Christianity is absolutely trustworthy and true. If you struggle with the summarized version of what I'm going to share with you today, 
uh, and you want more information, please feel free to go on to our website, our web resource in Daniel's sermon series, chapter 9. There will be part 1 and part 2. You can check it out. But here, let me give you a simple, simplified version. Simple, still not simple, huh? Simplified. Not quite simple. All right. We see that there are 70 weeks. So I just want you to know that Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy revolves around this number 70. Simple. And then in these verses, Daniel also tells us that these 70 weeks are divided into three major parts. And they are of different durations. First of all, you see seven. Then you see 62. And then lastly, in verse 27, you see one. So seven, 62, one. It all adds up to be 70. Got it so far? Daniel, 70 weeks divided into three parts. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, one week. I also want you to know that in the Hebrew, the word weeks in our English is not necessarily seven days. The word weeks in the Hebrew is really just sevens. So the way to understand Daniel's 70 weeks might be best seen as Daniel's 70 sevens. So you have seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one seven. And almost all commentators, pastors, they understand the sevens not as seven days, like in a week, but seven years. So Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks is really Daniel's prophecy of 70 times seven years. So it will look like this. The first set of seven will be 49 years. The second set of seven, trust my mathematics on this, will be 434 years, and the last one will be seven years. So, let's put it up in a chart. The overview of Daniel's 70 weeks is, number one, there will be a first chunk of 49 years, which is seven sevens. It will be followed up by a chunk of 62 sevens, which is 434 years. And then lastly, there will be the last chunk of one seven, which is seven years. Now, when does this thing all kick into motion? When the command is sent forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, that is the edict that was given by King Artaxerxes. We read of that in Nehemiah chapter 2. People have estimated that date to be 445 BC. So from that time onwards to the completion of the building of the city is seven weeks or 49 years. And then the last one that we are going to see here is the coming of the king, the coming of the prince. And that is when Christ enters the city of Jerusalem. He is the Messiah prince. He is the Messiah king. How long did it take for the command to be sent forth to Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem? This is one way people have calculated. I must say, the calculation of these dates are not universally agreed, but there is one way of calculation which says that the day Artaxerxes gives the command is on the 14th of March, 445 BC, the day Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. By the way, this is Palm Sunday. This coming Friday is Good Friday. This is supposedly the day Jesus 
was riding the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. So what a, what a day for us to preach on this Daniel's prophecy, right? So on that Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city and they estimate that to be the 6th of April, 32 AD. Now how long, how many days are these two events apart? People have calculated, don't ask me to do that, they calculated tediously and they found it to be a duration of 173,880 days. Now if you break it down, you would realize that this can be factorized, okay? This can be divided by 69. So it's 69 times 2,520 days. What is 2,520 days? I sound like a mathematician, but I'm not. What is 2,520 days? According to the calendar of 360 days, not our modern calendar of 365 days, that is exactly seven years. So, 69 sevens, which is the prophecy timeline given by Daniel, would be the exact day Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Now, whether this is the official, the absolutely right calculation, I would say, again, it is not universally agreed. But when I read the Bible, there is a sense that the people during the times of Jesus expected the coming of the Messiah, probably because of Daniel's prophecy. For example, you read about Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was an old man. He's not a, he's not a young boy who can have many decades to wait. He was an old man about to die, but he knew that the consolation, the comfort, the saviour of Israel is coming. The king is coming. Not only Simeon, but Anna, Anna the widow. She was also waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Someone who will save Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Not only the Jews, even the Samaritans knew it. The Samaritans, like the Samaritan woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. She's, she's expecting the Messiah to come. And when people wanted Jesus to be king, Jesus withdrew. Now, it's not that he is not the king, but it is not yet time. There is a time, there's a right time, I think, as God has revealed to Daniel where he will enter Jerusalem to be king. So before that, he's not going to show himself. He's not going to announce himself. But at the right time, he marches into Jerusalem in the donkey, on the donkey, and people say and recognize, blessed is the king. So this timeline is amazing. At least for this 69 weeks, you have understood, I think, what it all Represents. Now, after the coming of the king, Daniel went on to tell us, after this 62 weeks, after this 69, if you add the first seven, an anointed one shall be cut off. So, the Messiah will be cut off. What does it mean? It means that after he enters the city, he will be sacrificed on the cross. It's all in Daniel chapter 9. And after that, verse 27 the people of the prince who is to come. Now, this, I think, refers to a different prince. I think it refers to a different king. It refers to the Antichrist. So, the people of the Antichrist, the Romans, now, there are a lot of intricacies involved, but I would say that the Romans would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that took place, as you know, 
in AD 70. Now, not that the Antichrist destroyed the city, but the people of the Antichrist, the Romans, they destroyed the city. And on AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. All right. Have you got all that into your system? If you have, great, but throw them all aside now because it's not useful for you. The whole point is not even to talk about the first 69 weeks. All that is just background because the real focus is not on the first 69. The real focus about the abomination of desolation is right here in the last seven. So uh, if you have remembered all that, great, but don't be worried. If you are lost, you can always check it out. Turn on your minds and focus on the last week. Now, this last week, I want to tell you, it's not immediately after the 69. Because we know that the abomination of desolation has not yet happened, as we explained in sermon number one. So this 70th week has a break from the 69. There is no need for us to see it absolutely continuously. Prophecies, as I shared with you, there, are, there is this phenomenon of te prophetic telescoping that two events that look so near are actually very far apart. So there is the 70th week coming after an intermediate period. Now, how long is this period? It looks very short here, but actually it has gone on for some 2,000 years. From the time Jesus died to the 70th week, we have lived for 1,000 over, close to 2,000 years, and it has not yet happened but we know it will happen. So we're talking about a future event in this 70th week. And so let's put our microscope on verse 27, which speaks of that final week in Daniel's prophecy. I'd like you to note that in this Daniel's prophecy, the 70th week, it's about one week or one seven or one set of seven years. And this, this one set of seven years is to be divided into two halves, as you can see. Three and a half years, three and a half years. This three and a half year number will be a very significant number. It's 1,260 days. It's a time and times and half a time. Later on, you'll see the verses. It's very consistent in the Bible. Daniel, Revelation. There's this particular emphasis of three and a half years. Why? Because in Daniel 9.27, we see that the Antichrist, someone, he is called the Antichrist, I believe, he will make a strong covenant with many for one week, for seven years, but in the middle of it, for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So the idea here is that the Antichrist will agree with the people of Israel, peace for seven years, their freedom to worship, but at the middle mark, he comes in and he breaks that covenant. So now, he is going to show hand. Now, he's going to reveal who he really is. He's not their saviour. He's not to help them. But he's going to do what we see as the wing of abominations. So that's where Jesus got that phrase, abomination of desolation. On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Now, I suggest to you that the word wing is not a good translation. It should really be the pinnacle, the height. So look at it this way. And on the height 
at the highest point, the peak of his abominations, he shall come and he will destroy. So he's going to do something so terrible, so abominable, abominable, and he will destroy. What does it mean? Well, we cross-reference. I said, this abomination of desolation is mentioned in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 12. So one example, Daniel 12, from that time, the regular burnt offering. So there will come a time where burnt offerings will be offered up regularly. But at the three and a half year mark, in the middle of the seven years, it will be taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. We know what this is from Apostle Paul. He says that the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exhorts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. This is the offensive, hideous, abominable idolatry. In fact, it's worse than that. He sets himself to be God. And then he proceeds to destroy God's people. So, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, it all makes sense. It's about something that will take place in the future when the Antichrist will put himself to be the object of worship in the very temple of God. And when that happens... At the three and a half year mark, it then launches the great tribulation. For the next three and a half years, it's going to be misery, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. I read that Donald Trump just said that this COVID-19 situation might be worse than World War I, World War II. I do not know. But I'm sure in the great tribulation, it will be worse than any period of time humanity has experienced. That's what Jesus said. Great sorrow, great tribulation. And so he said, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are on the housetop, do not go down to take what is in his house. Just run, run. Don't turn back to take your cloak. Oh, it's so tragic for the woman, women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants because you can't run fast. This is really poetical, strong language to convey the pain, the misery, the desperation of those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath because there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be alive, would be saved. Like I said, COVID-19 is a little bit of foretaste of what that great tribulation might look like. But this is the joy. It will all come to an end one day. If you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all going to end well for you. You will have to go through sufferings, but it will all end well for you. And if you today do not know Jesus, I want to say to you, these prophetic sayings are going to come true. And I pray today you will repent and believe in Jesus lest it be too late. Now these things are also spoken of actually in Daniel 7. He shall speak, this Antichrist shall speak words against the Most High. He will blaspheme God and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He will persecute 
the people of God. He will persecute the church of God and shall think to change the times and the law. He will be so arrogant and proud that he thinks he can change everything and yet they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You get that? One, two, plus half equals two. Okay, I can't hear you, but three and a half years. That's Daniel 7. But like I said, everything is going to end well, and on the wing of abomination shall one come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is Antichrist. He's not going to survive long. There will be a coming judgment. He will be put to an end. But he's not going to be put to an end by man, but he'll be put to an end by the prince of princes. So Christ, like I said, is going to end well. He's going to come and he's going to defeat the Antichrist. Just like that. No problem at all. But these are the necessary labor process for this world to see the return of Jesus. The process starts off with the beginning of birth pains. The contractions start. It accentuates, it intensifies during the phase of the tribulation. Then it comes to a high, tense moment when the abomination of desolation appears in the temple of God, triggering three and a half years of severe labor pains before the sun and the moon and the stars darken when Jesus will return again. Now, I'm going to end soon. But I want to let you know, as we have shared last week, we believe Jesus is coming back. And we believe that he can come back at any period of time. It's just that he doesn't come in at any second. Because these events need to take place before he comes. And if you understand that it takes time for famines and pestilences and wars to intensify. It, it, it can't come just like that. For pestilences and famines and wars, it does take time. We are now adding to that an understanding that events in the abomination of desolation must also take place. So what must take place before the abomination of desolation can be committed? And therefore, what must take place before Jesus comes? Some necessary conditions that we are learning now before Jesus returns. Number one, I believe Israel must be a nation. I mean, the Antichrist can't make a pact with Israel unless Israel is a people, an entity, a nation. And then we must also see that Israel is in control of Jerusalem. Antichrist can't make a pact with Israel regarding Jerusalem if there is no control over Jerusalem by Israel. And then we must see that there must be a temple in Jerusalem. Now, these conditions might seem to you, of course, no problem, must be there. But do you know that these conditions look almost impossible after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? I mean, it began the diaspora of the Jews. It began the scattering of the Jews. They are not able to come back as a people. So from AD 70 onwards, Israel ceases to exist. It's gone. And things are not helped when you think about the Holocaust, when the Nazis eliminated 6 million Jews. Actually, you can read up on history about the Jewish people. They have been beaten and 
put down throughout the centuries ever since Jerusalem is is destroyed. It's terrible. So how can there be a treaty with a people who are scattered and persecuted? Well, it looked impossible for centuries until 1948, on the 14th of May, where it's official, the state of Israel is born. It looked impossible because they were a scattered people, but amidst war, free Israel is restored. And not only that, not only is this nation restored in 1948, the city of Jerusalem was also given back to Israel um, as a result of the Six-Day War. If you lived in those days, I think not many of you would, <laughs> uh, if you lived in those days, and you, if you are a Christian who understands prophecy, these events are monumental events. They are not just political events. They are There are conditions that need to be fulfilled for Daniel's prophecy to take place. So Israel is restored. The city is restored. Take a look at this video before I proceed. With the eyes of the entire world watching in stunned amazement, Israel declares her independence. For the first time in more than 2,000 years, the Jewish people are once again a sovereign nation. The joy of independence, however, is short-lived. The Islamic world is enraged. No sooner has Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion declared the resurrection of the Jewish state than seven Arab nations attack with all their fury. Overnight, 800,000 Jews find themselves at war with 50 million Arabs. The fledgling Israeli army has not a single tank. Their enemies have 2,000. Yet amazingly, Israel not only wins their war of independence, but succeeds in establishing herself as the only democracy in the modern Middle East. Israel's enemies, however, do not give up. Instead, they regroup, rebuild, rearm, until they're ready to strike again. The leaders of the Arab world vow to throw the Jews into the sea. The Soviet Union sells the Arab powers $2 billion worth of arms, tanks, and fighter jets. Soviet military advisors flood the region, training Arab forces, and even designing a strategy to destroy Israel. June 1967, surrounded by Soviet armed enemies and on the brink of another Holocaust, Israel strikes hard, fast, and without warning. In just six days, Israeli forces stun the world. 
They crushed the combined Arab armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. They quadruple their land, capturing the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. They reunify Jerusalem. They bring the Temple Mount back under Jewish control for the first time in 2,000 years. Some call it a triumph of Zionism, a tribute to the skill and cunning of the Israeli Defense Forces. Others call it a miraculous victory, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So in 1948, the nation is restored. In 1967, Jerusalem is restored. There are three conditions I mentioned. They are already fulfilled in two of them. There's the last one, and that is the temple must be restored. The temple must be restored because Daniel's prophecy spoke about an end to sacrifice and offering in the holy place. We see again in Daniel 12, 11, a regular burnt offering. By the way, the Jews don't offer offerings today because they have no temple. But there will come a day they will offer burnt offerings when the temple is restored. And the Antichrist needs to take his seat in the temple of God. And so Jesus says, this is the prophecy. And we know that the temple, when it's restored, you know that the prophetic clock has just moved on to the next gear. So are people preparing for a third temple? There are people who are doing that. And let me again share with you a simple video clip. The Jews are going to rebuild uh, the temple here in Jerusalem. And already we're seeing preparations uh, in the headlines. We see groups, Jewish groups, beginning to prepare already to rebuild the temple. For years now, there's been a movement uh, associated with what's called the Temple Institute uh, to build the laver, the menorah, other uh, table of showbread, other kinds of furniture and furnishings associated with the temple. Now, the temple itself was only 2,700 square feet. To replicate that building today would roughly cost $11 million. So we're talking about $4,000 a square foot. Why? Because Solomon believed this was the very spot that God dwelt and was to be worshipped. So there has been a movement to sort of, in the wings, have uh, the right implements, the right furniture, the right, uh, the required uh, uh, ceremonial kinds of trappings ready to go for the new temple at the time that it's built. And that has been underway for several years. So why is the Jerusalem temple not rebuilt yet? Uh, if you go to Israel, Jerusalem, you realize that the exact spot people think the temple should be built is currently occupied by a mosque. And it's called the Dome of the Rock. And I think that's why it's tricky. But I'm not sure how it's going to be fulfilled. There are some people who say that the exact spot may actually be some distance off that site that is currently occupied. I do not know. But I do know that perhaps when there is a movement to rebuild the Jerusalem temple, things are going to heat up. Now you say, does this mean this is still very far away? It need not be. Because if you notice, two are already fulfilled. The temple just needs to be rebuilt. And if I look at China, they can build a hospital in 10 days. 
uh, the temple can be built rather quickly, I suppose. Now, all that is to help you realize the balance that I hope we would get. Carson mentioned it, and I highlighted it last week. The New Testament focus here, focuses here on the soonness. Jesus is coming soon. The soonness of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ while refusing to specify some any second kind of notion. Meaning, Jesus is coming soon, but don't live in such a way that says, oh, he's coming back the next minute or the next day. He goes on to say, I want to suggest to you that this notion of imminency, the imminent, the soon-to-be coming of Jesus Christ is preservable if you understand it means something like, he's coming back soon and it could be in my lifetime, but not any second. So, Jesus is coming back. We know that for sure. All's going to end well for those who follow him. For those who endure until the end, it will be well with you. Though he may not be doing so any second now, he can come back at any period of time, even in our lifetime. There are those who swing to this extreme. He will come any second now. You know what happens to them? According to 2 Thessalonians, there are some who absolutely exactly think like that, and so they are behaving in this way. I hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You, you can't be bothered with life, practical life. You can't be bothered with working, you're not serving, because you say, why bother? Jesus is coming back. And that's exactly why they did so. They were shaken in their mind, they're alarmed, because they believe to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. But Paul says, no, not yet. That they will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul is saying, he's not coming back yet until you see the abomination of desolation. It's imminent, just not any second, though it can be in any part of your life. It can be in our lifetime. So one extreme is to say he's coming back any time now. Another extreme is to say, ah, he's never going to come back. <laughs> and if you think like that, the other extreme, you fall into the problem Peter warns about. There will be scoffers in the last days with scoffing and saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's always saying he's coming, but he's never come. He probably won't come. The balance, my brothers and sisters, is to believe Jesus is coming back. And even though he may not be doing it any second now, he will come back at any period of time, even in our lifetime. Possibly. So, I want to close with a few thoughts. Number one, biblical living is understanding this tension and being vigilant and sober and alert. That we will be fully engaged in drinking in the gospel, learning of God in His Word, of living out the gospel, of living lives of love and service and giving out the gospel, faithful to the gospel mission. That is... That is possible if you believe that he's not coming back tomorrow in a sense that I have to just get everything in order just for that, but also realizing that he's coming back and you cannot afford to be sloppish or sloppy or foolish. But let's live in a biblical vigilance, alertness, sobriety. I also like to encourage you today, as we go through COVID-19, it's a taste 
it's a little foretaste of the kind of fear and panic and anxiety this whole world will be plunged into during the labor pains. Maybe this is a good time to see ourselves if we truly believe in Jesus. COVID is a great separator, as we have shared last week from Reverend Sung's sharing. I hope today this will drive you to examine yourself, to see whether you are in the faith, and if you are not, come to Jesus Christ today that you might be saved. And to all of you who are online, you are catching us on video for the very first time, you're not a Christian and so on, this is so complicated to you. Can I tell you today, this is what the Bible is about. Jesus came to die for us in his first coming some 2,000 years ago. Jesus is coming back again a second time to receive those who believe to himself and to judge the world in sin. I want to encourage you, turn from your sin, repent and believe in Jesus while you may. Let's bow forward of prayer together. Father, we thank you this morning. It's a heavy-going message. Heavy because it is so scary, and heavy because these are things about the future which we are not so clear about as yet. But thank you. What is clear is so important. Jesus wins. He is coming back for us, and those who belong to him can have this certain hope. I pray today as well that your spirit will have a grip of human hearts, that we might fear, that we might have godly fear, that we might repent and believe in Jesus Christ who died to save us from our sins. So Father, help your church today, even as we go through a pandemic, not to give up on our faith, but to endure to the end, that we will continue to Drink in the gospel, live out the gospel, give out the gospel. May we today in storms of life learn to cry out to you even more. So bless your church, steady our hearts, keep our eyes, not virus-centered, but gospel-centered. The gospel of our victorious King. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.